Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, God and Art, we are going to be exploring God from the perspective of all different kinds of artistic medium. We will be talking about God from the perspective of painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poetry, film, and photography. My hope is that through these mediums, we will come to a deeper understanding of how God is present in our everyday lives. Enjoy. So our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Jeremiah, and I'd like to introduce to you Levi. He's going to be our potter for the day, and as I preach, he will be here making pottery on the side, so if you get bored with what I'm saying, just look at him. He's very entertaining, so give you something to do, right? Scripture begins, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, come, go down to the potter's house. And there you will hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you, in my hand, O house of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you who have not been here, we are doing a sermon series entitled God in Art, and we are exploring the different ways that we experience God through various types of artistic medium. And today we're talking about God in the stone or God in sculpture. Of course, there is no better artist to represent God in sculpture than the Renaissance artist who? You all know who he is? Michelangelo. Michelangelo. All right, Michelangelo. He was born on March 6, 1475 in Caprizi near Arezzo, Tuscany. And he was born into a family of bankers. And his father had connections to the most wealthy banking family in Florence, the Medicis. If you've never heard of the Medicis, then you probably watched The Godfather, I have a feeling, and they're pretty much the same kind of family. They were the original mafia, the Medicis. They ruled Florence with an iron fist. Lorenzo de' Medici, he was the de facto leader of Florence, and even though he was brutal, he was also very generous with his money, and he wanted to support the arts, and so what he did was he ended up creating the Medici Academy, which was a place where all the most talented young artists could come to be trained. And at the age of 15, Michelangelo, he began to train at the Medici Academy, and there is where he learned how to do sculpture. So for the next two years, he would work on two primary pieces. One is called Madonna on the Steps, and the second is called Battle of the Centaurs. Now remember, when you look at these, He was 15 years old, and these are his first sculptures that he ever produced. Not only is that amazing just to see what he was able to do, but Battle of the Centaurs was actually considered to be revolutionary because it was the first time a sculptor had ever been able to capture the fluidity of human movement in sculpture in the way that he did. But this particular sculpture, these two, as amazing as they are, they would pale in comparison to what he would produce just a few short years later. So in 1498, a cardinal in France named Jean de Belleris, he 
He comes to Michelangelo and he says, I would like you to produce a piece for my grave. And that piece was entitled Pieta. Pieta was Jesus. He was, after he's been crucified, strewn across his mother Mary's lap. From the moment that it was unveiled, the Pieta was declared to be the greatest sculpture ever produced by human hands. It is an amazing piece of artwork. If you've never seen it in person, many people who see it actually end up crying because it is such a realistic portrait of who they would have been. And what's amazing is that at the time, it was recognized being this way. A lot of times artists, they make something and it's not until many years later that they are recognized. The moment he unveiled it, it was this way. And the artist Giorgio Vasari, he was actually a master in his own right at painting, but he was also a historian. This is what he said of this particular work. He said, It is certainly a miracle that a formless block of stone could have ever been reduced to a perfection that nature is scarcely able to create in the flesh. This piece was so good that the Vatican said, we're going to take that for ourselves. You don't get that for your grave anymore. (laughs) They took it away. They brought it to the Vatican. That's where you can see it to this day. Now, the Pieta, it made Michelangelo a household name. Everybody was amazed at his ability to take this big hunk of rock and to transform it into this beautiful thing. And so they kept asking him, how do you do this? How have you been able to create such magnificent pieces of art? And this is what he said. I love this response that he has to people when they ask him. He says, The best artist has that thought alone, which is contained within the marble shell. The sculptor's hand can only break the spell to free the figures slumbering in the stone. Isn't that fascinating? Basically what he's saying is is that the figures and the forms and the sculpture, they already exist. They're already in there. The artist His job is not to impose his idea on the piece of rock that he sees. His idea is to see it and extract it out. And if you think that this is just his way of being modest, saying, oh, no, it's not that big a deal, I'm not that great. He really believed this. If you look at some of his lesser works, they were known as the prisoner's slaves. You see that these pieces, they look as though they are unfinished, right? The way that they are. But many art historians believe that he made them this way Intentionally. Now, it looks like they're trapped inside the stone, right? As if they're trying to come out, but they can't quite make it beyond their prison, which is inside of the granite, or inside of the marble in which they're in. And so, this is very different from the David, which everybody knows, right? Everybody knows the David, which is a beautiful piece of freestanding sculpture that he created. It's his most famous work. But these... He believed that these were not intended to be freed. He freed them as much as he could, but that was the form that he saw inside of the stone. Now, I think that's a very interesting idea, don't you? This idea that the figure, it exists already in the stone. It's almost as if Michelangelo believes that these figures, that they're pre-existent, that they've been there all along. And that's a fascinating thing for me because essentially... He's saying that when you look at this big hunk of marble, that in fact, the beauty lies within. All you need is a chisel to simply let go of those extraneous pieces of rock, and then you're going to see what lies underneath. And you know, I think the same is true of people in many ways. I've met people 
in my life, and you probably have too, and they're like these big hunks of marble stone, aren't they? They got these really rough edges, they're tough to be around, and it's really hard to see the beauty that lies underneath inside of their hearts. And I always think to myself, I always have this question, how did they get that way? How did they end up like this? What happened to them in their lives that caused them to be so closed off to the world? And I think the reality is that many of us, we grow up and we go through really tough, difficult circumstances in our lives. I mean, this is particularly true of adolescence, from the ages of 11 to 18. You all remember adolescence, right? It was a wonderful time to be alive. Would you agree with me? Right? That's a tough time of life, adolescence, those ages. Because as you grow up and you're in that period, you end up going through difficult times. You end up being challenged. It's full of lots of disappointment. So you fall in love and you have your heart broken. You watch as relationships that you've had since childhood, they just dissolve right before your eyes. Friends go away. They, they leave you behind. You realize that perhaps you're not as smart as you thought you might, want to, might have been or that you're not as athletic as you'd hoped to be. In essence, adolescence is a time that's filled with a lot of rejection and a lot of failure. And how you deal with that rejection and failure determines a lot of who you are going to be as an adult. I have met people who have had such negative experiences during adolescence and early adulthood that they are closed off to the world completely. Their trust has been broken so much that they have made a decision that they're not going to trust anyone. So rather than be hurt by anybody ever again, they don't invite anybody into their lives. Now, I don't know if you've met anybody like this before. Have you ever met anybody like that? Maybe you are that way yourself, where you have this closed-off heart. And, you know, that's hard for me when I see that, when I see people who have closed themselves off. Because in the first place, it prevents all of us from experiencing the beauty of who you are underneath. And then secondarily, it prevents you from being able to experience the beauty of the people around you in the world. But then I've also met people who have had really horrible, painful experiences growing up. Experiences where you sit there and you say, how did you even survive that? And they're not closed off to the world at all. In fact, quite to the contrary. All that pain and suffering, it formed them, it molded them into this person who has so much love and compassion and empathy and sympathy for the people around them. It's almost as if all of that pain and suffering served as a catalyst to reveal the beauty that lies within. And so when I look at these two different types of people, the person who is closed off to the world and the person who's very open to it, I have a question in my mind. What's the difference between the person who is broken by their negative experiences, and the person who is able to use those negative experiences to become something new and better than they were before. What is the difference between those two people? And to answer this question, I need to tell you a little bit about the man who was able to define a new standard for sculpture in the modern era, the Frenchman, Auguste Rodin. Now, for the better part, of 350 years. By the way, he's a good-looking guy, right? He looks really, uh, that's somebody you want to hang out with, probably, right? <laughs> Real happy figure right there. So, for the better part of 350 years, 
Michelangelo, he defined the art of sculpting. And when you see something like the Pieta, clearly that would make sense, right? Because, I mean, can any of us go out there and sculpt something like that? No, we can't. So that's really the pinnacle. That's what you're aiming for. But then, Auguste Rodin, he comes along, and he's able to successfully rebel against that standard for the first time. So Auguste Rodin, he's born in 1840 in Paris to parents who are working class. Even though they didn't have a lot of money, they saw that their son, he liked to do art, and so they sent him to what was known as the Petite École. It's a school for young people to study art and mathematics. And so he gets to this school, and he learns how to draw. He learns how to paint. He learns how to sculpt for the first time. At the age of 17, he decides he wants to continue his art education. He wants to move on from this. And so he applies to what's known as the Grand École, which is essentially the next step up. It would be one of a number of influential art institutes all around France. So he submits a companion piece of sculpture, sends it in to them, and he's rejected. Doesn't make it in. So then, a second time, he works, he steps back, he says, okay, I've got to regroup. He comes up with another piece of sculpture. And he comes up, submits it, and what happens the second time? He's rejected. Again. Then he regroups again. He spends another couple of years working on another piece that he submits to the Grand École. And what happens? He's rejected again. Now in the midst of all of this rejection, remember, he's rejected three times. In the midst of all this, he ends up having a huge tragedy in his life. His sister, Maria, she dies from an infection of the inner lining of her abdomen. Now, today, that would be very easy to fix because you just give some antibiotics and you'd be okay. Back then, that kind of stuff could kill you. And he felt personally responsible for his sister's death. You have to understand why. So, Rodin, he had introduced his sister to an unfaithful suitor. That would be the best way to put it. So, he basically introduces her, she forms a relationship, and at this time, it's not like today where you get into a bad relationship and you just break up and move on, right? At that time, if you get to a certain point in the relationship and it doesn't work out and the suitor is unfaithful, well, that renders the woman incapable of becoming married. And so she ends up moving in to a convent, becoming a nun, and unfortunately, she can't have the family that she'd always wanted. And so Rodin, he carried so much guilt because of what had happened to her. And when she died, even though he wasn't the cause of her infection, obviously, he just really took it hard. And so you have to understand that it is the death of his sister combined with being rejected from art school so many times that produced a man of very low self-image. This is why he looks the way that he does on the screen. This is a man who has had a very challenging life in some ways. Feeling that he doesn't have what it takes to become an artist, he realizes, i got to go do something else. So what he does is, he moves on, and he becomes a craftsman and an ornamenter. He, he goes and he works for this company that makes decorative objects for a person's home and does these architectural embellishments. It sounds like something would be a pretty lucrative career, right? Not really. He basically teetered on the edge of poverty for most of his life. And he was that way from pretty much all the way through his 20s into his early 30s. And then he found another job in Belgium. So he moves from France to Belgium. And there he works as a craftsman. And he starts making a living wage for the first time in his life. And then he saves up enough money. 
and he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a vacation, because he's never done a vacation before. And he goes down to Italy, and guess who he ends up seeing? The sculptures in Italy. Who does he see? Michelangelo. He sees his sculptures, and it really strikes him. And I love this quote that he has. He says, it is Michelangelo who has freed me from academic sculpture. It is Michelangelo who has freed me from academic sculpture. I find that to be slightly ironic since Michelangelo is the one who defined academic sculpture anyway. But he saw that and he said, I know what I'm going to do. So he goes back to Belgium, gets all the way up there, and he pours himself into his art. He pours all this pain, sorrow, all of this difficulty that he's felt through the last 15 years and he puts it into his art and as a result he creates something new and different that nobody had ever seen before. So the first thing he does is he starts to abandon the marble. He gets away from that and he starts working with clay. He starts to to take these people and to basically mold them out of clay and then he casts the clay in bronze. Now, This is nothing new. It's not like he invented that technique, but what he did with it was very new. Rather than make his subjects the men and women of mythology, he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to sculpt ordinary, everyday people, and more importantly, he's not going to hide any of their imperfections. One of his most famous pieces is called Mask of the Man with the Broken Nose. So this mask was based on a worker who he knew named Bibi. And this worker had very clear-cut facial features and, of course, as you could probably guess, a broken nose. So can you imagine what happens? He submits this piece for review by the artistic community. Were they thrilled to see that? Were they like, "Woo! wow, that's really amazing. That's different, right? Well, how do they feel about it? They hated it. They thought it was horrific. They had never seen anything like it, and they said, this will not do. But he defended it. He said, no, the beauty is in the realistic portrayal of this man's face. And in fact, what he said was, Mask of the Man with the Broken Nose was actually the piece that he felt was his first good piece of modeling, and that ultimately it became the standard by which he made all of his other work. It determined the trajectory of all of his other work, and Actually, unbeknownst to him, it became the standard by which all modern sculpture would come to be judged. Now, do you all know Auguste Rodin, his most famous piece? This is, of course, The Thinker, right? You all probably know that one. It's the guy sitting there thinking. Okay, but this is the piece that started it all off. Now, Rodin, he was very, very different from Michelangelo. Wouldn't you agree? He was not this artistic prodigy that just took the world by storm from his youth. Now, Rodin, he had to suffer. He had to go through a lot of pain and agony to be able to produce this new way of thinking about art. And so I raise the question to you again. What is the difference between the person who is broken by their negative experiences and the person who is able to use those negative experiences to become something different and new? And I actually think that the difference in these two people can actually be found in the art of these two master sculptors. So I find it to be fascinating that when we enter into our early 20s, we are entering into the prime of our youth. Now, I don't mean the prime of life. I don't want you all to hear that. I'm just saying it's the prime of your youth, right? So 
You're going to look the best that you've ever looked in your entire life. And unless you're like fine wine, it's pretty much all downhill from there, right? Right? Okay. So I'm figuring that out myself as I go. (laughs) You come out of school, you're usually educated at that point. You've gotten your education together. And you got all this energy and you're ready to take on the world. But yet, in your early 20s, you've just come out of this really hard period of your life between the ages of 11 and 18, 11 and 20. And so, even though you are feeling really good about things, you've had all these tough experiences. So, I've met so many people who, coming into their early 20s, they've dealt with the death of loved ones, of a parent, of a grandparent, of friends who are really close to them. I've met people who had to deal with abuse from family members, from people who they knew, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. I met so many people who were bullied by their peers as they grew up. And when this happens to you day after day, month after month, year after year, it causes you to be hardened to the world, doesn't it? And so even though when we're in our early 20s, we might look a lot like this, we actually feel a lot like this on the inside. And so the question to me becomes very simply, how have those negative experiences transformed your heart? Is your heart like stone? Have those negative experiences from your youth, have they hardened you so much that you are unable to change from your present state? Or is your heart like clay? Is it malleable? Can you become somebody very different than you are now in spite of your circumstances. And I have to say that I think the biggest difference between the person who is broken by their negative experiences and the person who is able to overcome those negative experiences is found in the way that they deal with them. And so, let me put it out there this way. The person who is broken by the world is the person who becomes defined by those negative experiences. Their lives revolve around those experiences and they are unable to let them go. Let me give you a good example of this. Anger. If you grow up in an angry household where there's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of screaming, and a lot of fighting, then more than likely you're going to grow up to become an angry adult. No doubt about it. Because the fact is, it's not just that that was modeled for you when you were young, but you were probably the target of a lot of that anger. And so you hold on to those experiences and you're unwilling to let them go. On the other hand, when you see somebody who's able to use those experiences to become something different and new, they take a different approach. They choose not to allow their lives to be defined by those experiences. In fact, not only are they willing to let them go, but they are willing to use those experiences as a way to become a better person. So the best way to think about it is like this. They take the negative experience and becomes the foundation for them to grow, to become somebody different and new. They look at those experiences and they say, I want to be different than that, and therefore I need to learn from those things. And that is exactly what our scripture today is all about. So in the scripture that we read today, Jeremiah, he's a prophet, God calls him and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the potter's house. So Jeremiah, he walks down to the potter's house 
And there, he's observing this potter as he's making his ceramics. But then, in the middle of it, while he's watching, it spoils in his hand. It stops working the way that he wants it to. And so, the potter, he has to reform it into something different than what he was planning to do originally. He has to do something different than what he wanted to do. And so he hears, whispering in his ear, God saying, Can I not do with you, O Israel, the same as this potter has done? In essence, God is saying that God can remold us into the person who God wants us to be. God can take our hearts and change us into this new person. But the reality is, that can only happen if we allow it to happen. I believe very, very strongly that you choose whether you have a heart of clay or a heart of stone. I know this because I had to make that very choice. So I have told you all in some of the sermons in the past that I actually had a pretty difficult life coming up in many respects. And that many of those experiences that I had, they left me quite damaged. And that I personally had a heart of stone. I was so upset by those things that had happened to me that I was unwilling to let them go. I had become defined by those negative experiences. And so my heart was very much full of hate. I hated those people who had hurt me so much. And I held on to that, and I could do nothing more than to think about them all the time. And then one day, I read in the Scriptures about how Jesus says that we should love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. I thought, that's a novel idea. It was new. I didn't think it was very much possible, but it was a new idea. I'd never thought about it before. And so I said, God, if this is what's going to happen, then I need you to help me because I can't do that by myself. And so I made a choice to allow that love into my heart. And as a result, over time, God transformed my heart from one of stone to one of clay. Over time, my experiences no longer defined who I was, but they became this foundation so that I could grow and become a better person. Indeed, I was no longer a person who was defined by hate, but rather, I became defined by love. And so, my prayer for you today is that you might not allow those negative experiences in your life to define who you are, but that you would use those negative experiences as a foundation so that you can grow and become someone better than who you are now. May you allow God to transform your heart from one of stone to one of clay. And may you allow God, the master sculptor, to reveal the beauty that lies inside of your own heart so that people might have the privilege of knowing the person who God intended you to be. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.